Welcome everyone, I'm Richard Krause. Hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. It's a big show, so we're gonna get right to it. Later on, we're going to meet Helen Walsh, author of Pull Focus, a novel. That's a book that's been described as part real housewives, part grown-up Nancy Drew. Set within the inner workings of an international film festival, the novel details Hollywood power brokers, Russian oil speculators, Chinese propagandists, and a bored chair who seemingly has it out for Jane, the book's main character. Lots with Helen later on in the show, but first, let's get to know legendary film critic Leonard Maltin. His new book, Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood, is on shelves now and details his 30-year run on Entertainment Tonight, his interviews with Golden Age Hollywood elites like Catherine Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, Sean Connery, Shirley Temple, and Jimmy Stewart, and also insights into movie making with stories from the past, present, and future stars of film like George Lucas, Quentin Tarantino, and Guillermo del Toro. Leonard Malton joined me via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. When we go back in time, you started publishing your thoughts about movies when you were just 13 years old. Tell me a little bit about what pushed you towards that. As some kids will do, they'll get hooked on something. Mm -hmm. Baseball, hockey, uh, <laughs> stock market, whatever <laughs> it may be for a school project. Uh, and that's how I got about movie history. Uh, I, I got show, I was shown some silent comedies, uh, Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Laurel and Hardy, and I fell head over heels. So I was a precocious reader. Mm -hmm. I went to my local public library, which was walking distance of my house in New Jersey, and uh, took out every book they had to do with that era and those people. And reading about them and that incredible period of time uh, made me want to write about them. And writing was my other great love, my great pursuit. So I combined my two passions uh, that were just blooming at that moment into one, writing about movies. Would you call yourself in those days, a discriminating movie goer? Well, I already, I, I already had the chutzpah to have my own opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Today, that defines social media on a regular That's basis. Right. <laughs> but uh, no, I did have, a, in fact, one of my mentors, uh, a wonderful uh, man named William K. Everson, who was a film uh, historian and teacher and author of uh, passed away some years ago and his wife found the first letter I ever wrote to him. Oh, was I embarrassed to read that. <laughs> oh my God, the nerve of that kid. <laughs> what, what, what did you say in the letter? Well, I mean, I was very polite to him. I, I you know, I, I it was no embarrassment in that, in that sense. But I, I, I told him I just watched an eight millimeter copy of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And, and I found it rather boring. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, well, maybe that's a movie you have to grow into a little bit. Yes, at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, did you see things on the big screen or were you a child of television? I mean, you're talking about eight millimeter prints, but uh, I grew up in a very small town and had limited access to the big screen. So I learned about the classics by watching them on television. Well, mostly I did too, but we lived in a close-in suburb to Manhattan. Mm. 
and and uh, my parents were New Yorkers, and uh, so uh, I got into the city pretty often. And once once I turned twelve, they let me go by myself or with my my friends into Manhattan, where we went to the great New York City revival theaters mm. and to the Museum of Modern Art, which showed uh, you know repertory cinema, uh, and um, so I was lucky enough to see a lot of this on the big screen for the first time. I would imagine that going to those grand New York City theaters, the, I'm thinking of the theaters that would hold 2,000 people, and they were uh, beautiful, uh, almost relics probably of a different age, but they were gilded and beautiful looking. Was that part of the whole love for you, this experience of being part of community, sitting in this beautiful room watching film? Not, not at first, no. Uh, at first, it was the films that got me. Mm. Uh, I remember the exact theater where I saw a, uh, a life-changing movie called The Golden Age of Comedy, 1958, uh, made by a man named Robert Youngson, who did quite a number of these compilation films, and who I later got to meet and know. Uh, uh, those, there are lots of uh, uh, full-circle events like that in my life. And, and the theater was very uh, un, un, unimpressive, let's say. And uh, only later did I go to Radio City Music Hall, which is just as you describe it. And uh, for the rest of it, the, the theaters in my neck of the woods in New Jersey were uh, ordinary kind of neighborhood theaters. Mm -hmm. And tell me a little bit about the moment that film going, writing about film, when you knew it would be a profession? Well, that didn't happen for a long time. Mm -hmm. even, even while I was attending New York University, uh, and even after I'd sold my first book, which happened as I entered New York University, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the idea that this could be a life uh, Life change, well, a lifetime profession, mm -hmm. which is what it's become. Uh, I, I didn't think that was feasible. Uh, what I thought what might be feasible to me w would be teaching film and, and maybe selling some freelance articles to magazines about film. I saw that as a possibility. You're listening to my interview with legendary film critic Leonard Malton. His new book, Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood, is available now wherever fine books are sold. It obviously rolled out very differently for you there. And the, the book uh, is a, a really lovely memoir looking back over your career. And what I really liked about this book is uh, that it's uh, unwaveringly positive. It is an upbeat read. Uh, there is some talk of, of some difficulty at entertainment tonight. But beyond that, uh, you're, you're not talking uh, trash about any of the people that you interviewed. And, that, and I, 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 I liked that. I wanted that. Do you think that that is part of your success was uh, the idea that uh, people knew that you really loved the form and you loved the people that make the form and, and that was your attitude going in? It became part of my success mm -hmm. uh, once, I was, uh, once I was working for Entertainment Tonight yeah. and became a known entity. Uh, then it did open doors. Yeah. But uh, before that, uh, I had to express myself uh, in, in an introductory letter or a, 
fast-paced phone conversation, and, and I tried my best to express those feelings. Sometimes they believed me, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes in the middle of a conversation, an actor would say to me, how do you know that film? <laughs> and I'd say, well, I wasn't kidding when I told you I really know your movies. <laughs> they found it astonishing at times. When you think back to the thousands, I'm not sure how many it would be, but thousands, tens of thousands of interviews that you've probably done, what first pops into your mind? What moments? Well, the first one I think of whenever anybody asks me a question like that is Catherine Hepburn. You surely know that, that people tend to look upon you as a woman ahead of her time in terms of independence and in terms of being in, in charge of your own life and that kind of thing. Do you see yourself that way? I never thought about it. I always thought you were supposed to be in charge of your own life. <laughs> And ahead of the times. I had a mother and father who were way ahead of their times. I really never thought about it. She was a uh, uh, not a familiar face on TV talk shows. Uh, she didn't do any of them until, until Dick Cavett twisted her arm successfully. And uh, because she's the perfect interview. Uh, uh, colorful, outspoken, blunt, uh, never dull. And, and it was it was in her townhouse in the East 40s in Manhattan. The wow. setting was perfect. You know, everything about it was just great. And she's and Catherine Hepburn. She's <laughs> Catherine Hepburn. When you are writing a book like this, looking back over your life and career, uh, do you have to do research or is it all bottled up in, in your head? Do you have journals? Do you have, you've had a well-documented life. Did you, do you do that sort of thing and look back? I didn't do a lot of research. I, I, I had almost all of it in my head. Uh, I called on my family, my wife in particular, because she's known me longest mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, for some factual backup. Uh, and I, though I've never kept a journal, which I wish I had, um, I did make journal entries like that day I first interviewed Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. I was smart enough to do that, uh, to come home and just write it all down. Not, not literally every quote of hers, but all the incidental things that went on. And that enabled me to write the chapter that I did. Same about working with one, one glorious day with Jimmy Stewart. Uh. So there were, there were moments that I recognized as they were happening, as uh, moments or days or events that I didn't want to forget a thing about. That would be very special as a as a, a film buff and and later professional film buff. You call yourself in the book uh, the luckiest uh, film buff ever, perhaps. So I, I I love all that. But those moments when you meet Catherine Hepburn or or Jimmy Stewart, someone like that. Uh, do stay with you and you want to soak that in. I interviewed Elizabeth Taylor once years ago, and it was in that moment that I, I, I wanted to remember every second of that moment. And we were filming it, but there was more than you can catch through the, the television camera. I, I went home and I did the same. I made notes about it so that I would be able to have that recall years later. And I'm, I'm sure you're glad you did that as I am. 
Let's continue our conversation with the legendary film critic Leonard Maltin. His new book, Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood, is in stores right now. And we began this segment by talking about the difficulties in writing a memoir. Nothing was terribly difficult. I mean, what it was, was a salvation during pandemic. Yes. (laughs) It gave me something uh, to do every day, a reason to get out of bed. Uh, a, uh, a motivation, you know, and a distraction. Yeah. Well, you're still extremely busy. Uh, you're doing a, a, a podcast. Uh, you've, you know, you, you, you are still very much keeping around it. Do you go to the movies still every week or how does it work for you now? Well, uh, like a, a lot of other people, I'm, uh, I was reluctant to go back into a theater, uh, at least, a, you know, a sizable movie theater. Mm-hmm. And so I don't do that with great glee, but uh, I've started going back to press and media screenings. And um, uh, but uh, I admit I'm not I'm not all in. And, and in, in because of the of the pandemic and the risk involved. Mostly, though, some of it is changing habits mm-hmm. after. I mean, I've never watched so much television. Yeah. Uh, as I have this past year and a half. Um, although when I was a kid, I was a TV junkie <laughs> and you could barely tear me away from the set. Uh, but uh, I mean, for instance, a few weeks ago uh, on, a, on a Saturday, uh, my wife said to me, uh, want to watch that Clint Eastwood movie, that new one, Cry Macho? Yeah. I said, yeah. And there's a theater just a few miles away from us. But that I just we decided for that one we would watch it on HBO Max. Mm. So we took the coward's way out, <laughs> and and watched it at home. And uh, think I don't think we derived, deprived ourselves of anything in particular. It's not that good a movie. Well, I, I agree with you on that. I agree with you. It's not that good a movie. It's also the kind of movie I think that you can quite comfortably watch at home because it's a small character-driven drama. Frequently, it's just Clint and the and the young man who is the the, the, the sidekick uh, on screen at the same time. So you don't need to see that necessarily on a huge screen. Something like Dune, I would think that you really need to see on as big a screen as possible. I agree. And I showed it in my class at USC, University of Southern California, last Thursday night here in LA, where I teach in a, in a first class auditorium theater where we have superb picture and sound. And what do you uh, get out of teaching? What do, does that, is it simply a way of passing along a lifetime's worth of, of accumulated knowledge? Uh, is it the bright young faces in front of you? What is it? The bright young masked faces in front of me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I still find that disconcerting, Richard. I have to say, I mean, I agree with the with the reason for the masks, but uh, I can't say I'm thrilled to look out of the sea of half faces. Yeah. Because uh, I've been teaching this class for t- 22 years now, and what I normally get out of it is response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very hard to gauge response when even hearing them talking is difficult through the masks. Uh, What I get out of it is I get a uh, weekly 
immersion in uh, the world of a demographic that I'm not part of. Right. I'm talking to 20-somethings and they're talking to me. And while I try not to emphasize the gulf that separates us, uh, it's unavoidable. I'm getting older. And, uh, and they stay the same age. <laughs> and uh, uh, so it tells me what, what they're thinking, uh, what, they're, uh, uh, what they find appealing, what they find unappealing. Uh, uh, and it's like a window, uh, you know, a window on the most desirable uh, demo that, that exists for movie going and television. You're listening to my interview with legendary film critic Leonard Malton. His new memoir, Starstruck, My Unlikely Road to Hollywood, is available now wherever fine books are sold. And I'm sure that they uh, are liking different movies than perhaps appeal to you. I know as I've gotten older and you get a little further away from your 20s, that is something that happens. But how do you respond to people who might say, oh, there's no good movies. There's no good movies anymore. Well, I say you just have to, you have to hunt a little harder. That's right. You have to widen your, expand your net widen your uh, your, your uh, field of vision. Uh, yes, they aren't making the kind of mainstream Hollywood movies we all used to enjoy uh, as often as they once did. But if you expand that to include independently made films, small scale movies, uh, documentaries, which really had a renaissance. Or Netflix. And or, or, or the streaming services. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you see an awful lot of good stuff. Did you see the Netflix movie with Michael Keaton called Trust? I haven't seen that. It's very good. Oh, good, good. I will, I will have a look because that's what would have been probably a mid-level studio movie. Yep. $40 million, something like that. And the studios aren't so interested in making those anymore because they won't make a billion dollars at the box office. Uh, right. They want to make bigger movies, a bigger risk, but bigger return. Uh, but that's where I think the streaming services and indies are doing a great service. And I think during the pandemic, when the movie theaters were closed down, a lot of people rediscovered these smaller films because you were we were watching more things at home and we're watching more films at home maybe than we might have uh, pre-pandemic. And it was a lot of those indies and, and Netflix films and other streaming services. I think that hopefully, my fingers are crossed here, will reignite uh, a renaissance in smaller scale storytelling for the big screen. I sure hope you're right. Yeah. I'm rooting for the same thing. <laughs> now, in this book, you write uh, a, a about movies like The Greatest Show on Earth, and you talk about Catherine Hepburn, that sort of thing. Are you hoping that you will ignite sort of a renaissance and interest in uh, those movies and, and actors for a younger generation? Well, I don't know who would read my book that wasn't already interested in that. Right. Uh, so let's let's be realistic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think I'm going to have big sales in college bookstores, uh, uh, but theoretically, yes, uh, that would be a wonderful thing. Uh, but if I get just one new viewer to try out Turner Classic Movies or rent something on, on Netflix or Hulu, uh, then my, my, my job uh, has not been in vain. 
I understand that you have a new grandchild and that one of the things that you would like to do with this grandchild is expose them to Charlie Chaplin, to Laurel and Hardy, the movies that probably ignited your love of film. Uh, do you think that those movies, uh, because they are timeless in a lot of ways, because they were made for broad audiences, do you think that they have an appeal for children still today? I think they do, but... I know it for a fact. Mm -hmm. I've, I've introduced too many screenings in classic movie theaters and on college campuses uh, over the past decades to, to have any, even a shred of doubt if if you're showing a great silent movie, especially a silent comedy, with one of those great stars and filmmakers, uh, they play. Mm -hmm. They play. I mean, uh, I'll never forget taking a, I guess our daughter was 10 or 11, and for a birthday party, we took a small group of kids to see Harold Lloyd in The Freshman. Yeah. And at the end, one of her 10 or 11-year-old classmates said, Boy, I didn't think it was going to be that good. <laughs> you know, I want I wanted to hug him. You know, that was legendary film critic Leonard Moulton. You watched him for thirty years on Entertainment Tonight. Now pick up the book Starstruck: My Unlikely Road to Hollywood and get all the details about the behind-the-scenes action and his interviews with Elizabeth Taylor and Sean Connery and much, much more. It's a great book if you're a movie fan. My next guest is Helen Walsh. She is the founder of Canada's premier literary mentorship organization, and she's also the author of Pull Focus, a novel which was just named one of Chatelaine's top fall reads. It's set within the inner workings of an international film festival and details Hollywood power brokers, Russian oil speculators, hashtag Me Too, and lots, lots more. The book is called Pull Focus, Let's get to know its author, Helen Walsh. Tell me a little bit about where the story concept for Pull Focused came from. Well, it came originally out of, of my experience working in uh, film and television. Um, but the inciting incident, as we'd call it in a screenplay, came a decade ago when uh, I had arranged for a internship for a young woman uh, that worked with me with an L.A. production company at TIFF. And in that uh, experience, she came up with up against Harvey Weinstein and uh, he pulled his Harvey and she, you know, she was a smart girl and a number of people around her warned her because of course, all of us knew about Harvey Weinstein, even before it hit the press, right? We just didn't talk about it for fear of legal, legal ramifications and because he was so powerful, but her experience of that made me so angry. And of course, tapped into other experiences one has uh, or knows of. Um, and so I wrote a, the very first scene that is one of the few scenes that are still around in the book. Uh, and it was between the protagonist and uh, a young woman. Well, they always say the art of writing is in the rewriting. And it sounds like that's what happened here with this book, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I wrote several. I was running two arts organizations at mm -hmm. the time, one of which I still still run, Diaspora Dialogues. Um, but it was, you know, 60 hour days, a lot of travels, very non-conducive to writing a novel that way. So it took s several drafts. And so why now? Why, when you were so busy, uh, this story had been percolating for a long time, it seems like, but why now? Well, I'd always wanted to write and I wrote a novel in, in my 20s, which I uh, put in a drawer and never sent out. And then I wrote screenplays and 
I wrote proposals and pitch decks and grant applications. I was always writing something, um, but wanting to get back to being a novelist uh, or to be a novelist was uh, always my dream. And one day I just thought uh, time is marching on, you know, and a friend of mine, uh, the late Priscilla Uppel, who is a poet and a novelist, said to me over lunch one day, look, Helen, you're always going to be running something or producing something. It's just who you are. So if you wait for time, it's never going to happen. You have to make it. And how did the story change when you say that there was the first bit lasted throughout uh, all the edits and rewriting and all that sort of thing? How did the story change? Well, it just got more layered every single time. Um, it got late, both more layered and more simple. The very first draft, I had a kind of memento, reversed action, <laughs> dual plot lines, ridiculous structure for a first-time novelist. Uh, and so I ne needed to pare it back to telling a story. But then as I told that story, I just realized these issues, um, both the sexual violence, sexual predator issues, but the larger issues around money and, and gender and power, global class. finance, yeah. and class, absolutely. Uh, they're complicated. There are no easy answers for those. So as, that, as I understood that, I had to write in more characters, more plot lines to really try to pull that apart. Let's talk a little bit about uh, power structures within the film industry, which are sort of center or central to the ideas that are in this book and class, because I think that they are kind of interwoven in a lot of ways, big topics, big subjects to uh, approach in a novel. Um, how did you approach them uh, and how did you find a way to weave them seamlessly into uh, the storytelling? Well, it's very kind of you to say seamless. I would say that would be eight drafts of uh, working on that. And during that time, I you know, had different writers that were, were reading and giving feedback. And the feedback, some people felt I really needed to focus on the personal storyline. And some really felt I needed to focus on the professional storyline. But I knew at my heart that in order to get this protagonist, Jane, out on paper, I needed to focus on both. Um, the In terms of the the power structure within the entertainment industry. I mean, A, I worked in, in Los Angeles and New York for a time. I worked with a uh, on a crazy project with a company called Anonymous Content, which I'm sure you know, Steve Golan's Anonymous Content. Um, and so it is a world of extremes, right? As, as you well know, it's a world of eccentric personalities, so much at stake. Um, you know, the both the, you know, the charming and the vulgar all at the same time. So even spending two or three years within that world gives you material for several books, um, but also in Canada too, right? I mean, we're not, you know, the, the people who make up the film industry are, uh, are an eclectic group of folks. And so the material is just there if you're observing and writing it down. You're listening to my interview with Helen Walsh, author of Pull Focus, a novel available wherever you buy fine books. The book suggests that change needs to come. We've been having that conversation now uh, for the last number of years since Me Too really uh, gripped everyone's imaginations and, and, and actions. Uh, what changes do you hope to see in the film industry based on what you have written in the book, uh, which I'm sure is probably, frankly, toned down a little bit compared to what actually the stories that you would actually hear in real life. Uh, certainly some of the Weinstein stories make your hair curl when you when you hear them. Uh, but what changes do you hope to see? Well, I think so much that so often that when we look at change, we look at change on the individual level and we see 
we see the problems and then we think we see the solutions when you have Harvey Weinstein sent to jail, when you have R. Kelly, you know, uh, um, uh, convicted. But those are those are just part of it, right? I mean, the structural change is much harder. Now, we, I would say there was a report that came out a couple months ago that said we are seeing more directors in charge of films, you know, uh, but we need it all the way down. We need studio heads to be, you know, to be women. We need to, everybody to be held accountable. We need, you know, structures with on sets. Uh, we need, you know, all kinds of the structural elements of who has control and who has the final say. I mean, not related to gender, but we look at this terrible tragedy on the film, you know, last week and, yeah, and Rust. Completely, film Rust, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's completely related to the money, right? Who had money to spend, you know, all the people that were well established as, as armorers declined that job, you know, who has the right on set. And increasingly as the streamers have uh, such an insatiable demand for content, uh, the budgets are being our, our, our budgets are being, you know, um, shimmy down. And so all kinds of unsafe working conditions. And that writ large is a challenge in the film industry right now. It is interesting that the first rules uh, in terms of gunplay on film sets uh, came in the 1930s. It was a Jimmy Cagney movie where they used live ammunition to shoot at him uh, in a scene and one almost nicked his head and he said, that's it, we have to make some changes here. Uh, and they did, but uh, clearly, you know, those issues still, uh, those issues are still with us. They're and also with us in, in use of nudity, right? I mean, yeah. so much of that uh, challenges are, uh, that women have been pushing for is greater control of nudity and sex scenes on camera. And that is slowly working its way through. But it really all boils down to money. It does. You know, we, I think that there are very few people that get into uh, a creative life strictly motivated by money because the chances that you're going to make any money are very small. Especially uh, in Canada, Richard. Espe yeah, especially in Canada. So what you want, you know, is to create something beautiful or something interesting or express your passion in some way. Uh, but really, ultimately, uh, it boils down to uh, a situation where money probably on the hierarchy of creativity, art and whatever else, money sits above it all. And all of those money have vested interests, right? Whether it's whether it's telefilm, whether it's a studio, whether it's you know Roman Abramovich and his uh, his uh, Russian somehow that money came about film fund. You know, <laughs> I think that uh, who, you know the person who call who pays the tune calls the piper. And did I get that saying right? I think I did. But uh, but it is, and you know, I think it, it's it's at our disservice that we pretend art is not also culture. All of it is monetized. We look at it as mum and apple pie kind of industries and it's not. And I think we're better, you know, I think we're better off if we face, have an honest conversation about that um, and about what the trade-offs are. I mean, they're always gonna be there. Somebody has to pay. But I, I think we hide it at our peril. The book is called Pull Focus, a novel. It's available wherever you buy fine books. The author is Helen Walsh. Why write this as a, a fiction novel rather than write a memoir or interview uh, women who have had terrible experiences mm -hmm. within the film industry? Well, I think we already see that. There's been lots of long-form journalism uh, on on Me Too. and um, uh, But I think... 
I think often people hear truth better through fiction. It is less threatening than than journalism or nonfiction or even documentary. Uh, you can you can take um, you can go at things without fear of libel. Mostly, mostly you can go at things without fear of libel. There was one moment during the process where I had to uh, actually engage a libel lawyer, but um, I I just think I I. I love everything. I love documentary, but but most of all, I love uh, uh, fiction and narrative film. And because I think you can just go at emotional truths in a way that sometimes the blunt trauma of fact gets in the way. And what has the reaction been from people in the industry that you know who have read the book? They said that I've hit it right on, including, um, including people that run or work at in senior levels at festivals, um, not to be named, but uh, but that those issues of extreme time crunch, extreme pressures that are competing pressures, all the money at stake, the eccentricity of the of the players, particularly the the players with power, right? And that's the people with money. So the film financiers, the producers, uh, people are saying that the reaction has been that it that it's uh, that it's very real for them. And are you working on something right now? Are you working on another book? I am. I When I wrote this, it was a standalone book. But when I got to the end of it, I didn't tie everything up in a very neat bow because I don't believe life works that way. Because I think that, you know, there's a Hitchcockian element of, of threat that overhangs this book. And I think that's very real for the lives of women. So I didn't want to put a checkbox at the end and say, bad guy nabbed, you know, everything will be fine now. But it meant that after, after I finished it, those characters and some of those issues uh, stayed with me. So I have written a follow-up novel that takes place four months later, um, that also goes more deeply into some of the global issues around power. So, you know, money laundering, trafficking, uh, both of uh, women and, and drugs, and that kind of whole realm. I've been busily uh, interviewing anti-money laundering experts in various cities. And so it's been super interesting. Well, it's a book about the film industry. So of course there has to be a sequel. Of course, you know. right. if <laughs> not a series. Yes. <laughs> um, it, do you think of far enough into the future or while you're writing a book like this of what the film adaptation might look like? I did. I mean, I certainly you know, because I've written uh, screenplays before, I, I storyboarded this out before I started. And I, you know, from everything from the beat sheet to the storyboard to the character descriptions, and I hung it on my wall, like you hung Kurt Vonnegut on your wall. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I revised it as I went along with, you know, color coded stickies, ABC storylines, a whole bit. Uh, so in that, then, and, and because I felt like the book had to reflect the industry, you know, so that the rhythms of the book, I wanted to be the rhythms of a film or long form television. So, yes, I think it's ideally suited. Um, I'm having a few conversations right now. I've written, uh, you know, a show Bible. So we'll see. We'll see. You're listening to my interview with Helen Walsh, author of Pull Focus, a novel available now wherever you buy fine books. This being your first published novel, you've written lots of other things, your first published novel. There's lots of, of elements that go into writing a novel. I think that people who have never written a book or who have always wanted to write a book uh, don't understand and don't really have any idea about. What would you say to someone who approaches you and said, I want to write a novel? What's your best bit of advice? 
I think you just have to be bold, you know, whatever anybody's, you know, your voice matters. Critics don't. There's lots of stories that are retold all the time. Um, but if you're, you have to be driven to write it, you know, like you don't, you can't just want to be a writer because if you don't have a story to tell, it's just too hard. Uh, but I think if, if you do, then just be persistent and mostly just write every day. Like that was the problem for the first few years when I was trying to write this. It wasn't until I left one of the organizations I was running in 2017, uh, specifically so that I could devote myself to writing. You need to write every day in order to keep it in your head. Uh, you can't let weeks go between because you're always writing yourself back into it. Um, so I would just say consistently. And now a day is much better than a week a month i think uh, that it's a muscle as well it's not just simply juggling the the story elements in your head although that's a huge part of it um but whenever i've written any of my books um I have ensured that I write uh, at least an hour a day, more than that, if I can, uh, simply because I think that you you start thinking differently and it evolves over time. Absolutely, Richard. Absolutely. It's a muscle. And it's also a confidence game. Yeah. And if you if you leave too much between the times, you lose your confidence. Those nibbling ducks of self-doubt, man, they're always there waiting for you. Uh, but if you write consistently, then you're just in the story and you don't judge yourself in quite the same uh, drastic way you do when you leave periods of time. And do you write? For, I write first thing in the morning when the brain is is fresh and the world is quiet, and preferably yeah. when it's dark outside. So I yeah, I I used to write in the middle of the night. I used to love writing between like midnight and six a.m. because there's no possibility of procrastination for me. I can't get out and start vacuuming because I'm going to bother the neighbors or wake up my wife. I can't uh, do anything. I can't do anything else except sit down here and focus. I don't do that anymore. Now uh, I am kind of more of an early morning person. Uh, by nine o'clock, I've generally, you know, accomplished something that, you know, someone will eventually read at some point. So for me, uh, it's important just to do it every single day. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it is the, that's where the structure comes in. I don't know if you also storyboard things out. I mean, I, I feel, you know, if I have some kind of structure there, even if I don't follow it, then the mind feels freer to create, right? It, it, you know, somehow bounded. Years ago, I worked on a project, uh, actually with Anonymous, where, where, um, we had one set and 10 different filmmakers came in to shoot on the same set. And, uh, and it was that, that sense that when you have some restrictions, then the mind can flow more freely. And I certainly, for me, everybody's got a different way, but for me, that's absolutely true. Yeah. My books, generally speaking, are nonfiction and they are uh, comprised of, you know, the, the book I wrote about Ken Russell's movie, The Devils, took me two and a half years to write because everyone was 80 years old that was involved. None of them had agents anymore and I had to track them down. But as I tracked more and more of the actors down and the, the cinematographers and everybody, I spoke with everyone involved in that production, the story changed over time. And so I had an idea of what I wanted to do, which got completely thrown out the window uh, as soon as, you know, I interviewed the cinematographer who said, oh, no, no, this is what actually happened. And then, you know. Well, Helen, lovely to speak with you. Thank you for doing this. It was a delight, Richard. I, I love your show. I love. I, I also love pop culture and all things film and TV. So I'm absolutely delighted to chat. 
That was Helen Walsh, author of Pull Focus, a novel. Find that book wherever fine books are sold. Big thanks to Helen. Also a big thanks to Starstruck, my unlikely road to Hollywood author, Leonard Moulton. Of course, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay happy, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. (laughs) 